Thanks for joining us for the Small Talk Big Ideas podcast, a podcast to enrich your soul, where we have conversations with inspiring people about all things property, business, and life. And now, the host of Small Talk Big Ideas, Ian Yugate. Hey, welcome to the Small Talk Big Ideas podcast. And today I bring along one of my amazing mates, William Moore. You may know him as Billy Moore, especially if you're from Queensland and New South Wales. Now, he has been a significant changer to the way that the Queensland state of origin call was brought out. If you ever wondered where the term Queenslander came from, listen to Billy Moore's version of events of how it actually came out. But more importantly, Billy Moore, who made it to the top grade of Australian Rugby League, was actually much more than than just a rugby league player and now has actually created a formidable business not in just in one area but in many areas and has a great influence on a number of people including those people out there that just want to set one goal and that's what he's really good at enjoy today's podcast and subscribe and follow if you want to hear more from us okay william moore it's a long story short Um, I was training for my first marathon, which was the New York Marathon. Uh, To get into the New York Marathon, we were unsure that that there was a waiting list to get in. Hmm. Um, And uh, there was a company called Travelling Fit that actually has some ballot to get into the New York Marathon. I rang, I was sitting there on the couch watching um, ABC and they had Running to America. It was a documentary by... Um, Robert D. Costella, who went to the Indigenous communities and he pulled people out, not because they were fit, but because he thought he had that they had the right mental state and trained them up for six months and then sent them over to New York to run the New York Marathon. So there was four of them, I think, that first year. Yep. And I watched that documentary and I never wanted to run a marathon really. And then I thought, oh, why not? Like, if you're going to do it, if you're going to do one in your life, you might as well do New York. And so I rang them up, travelling fit, and I said, you know, oh, no, no, there's a waiting list of about 60 people. And um, you could try next year, but this year's definitely out. And this was probably, you know, March or, yep. you know, early in the year. So then I... um. So I kept on ringing back. I kept on ringing back, and every couple of weeks, and it was um, what's your cousin's name? Tina. Tina. Tina would always answer the phone, um, and so it just happens that Tina, that worked at Travelling Fit, is um, related to Billy. But I didn't know at the time because mm. I didn't even know who Billy was. Well, I knew who he was, but I didn't know him personally. So anyway, I rang one day and I said, "Look, whatever you could do, what is there anything? Could you put me forward all the way up the waiting list?" And she goes, "You won't believe it, but the last phone call that I just hung up on." He's cancelled, and you've called me enough. Do you want the spot? I you've said, been Fuck yeah, I'm in, right? So um, I put it out there, and I got it, and uh, that was 2012. We flew over 2012, but yep. Cyclone Sandy had gone through, yep. and they absolutely guaranteed us, and they guaranteed that the race was still going ahead. So mm-hmm. this, the race was on the Sunday, and we were leaving on the Wednesday, I think. Yep. And so um, anyway, so I get, we go, we fly over, get go from um, LA into New York, six-hour flight, and I'm sitting there on the plane. And my first introduction to you and Kerry was what I didn't really see you, was I saw I'm sitting down, obviously, very low in the seat, and I see <laughs> Kerry's ass come past at my height, and I'm an ass person, I'm not a bum, I'm not a boob person, right? And I went, oh, that's a nice ass. Anyway, it ends up being your wife's ass. Um, and so... Yeah, well, actually, I will confirm, her, her bum is pretty good. <laughs> 
and uh, especially after the marathon training, it was, it was fantastic. But to our wonderful uh, listeners, um, pleasure to be here. Uh, I've worked with Ian on numerous occasions. And since that 12, so what's that, eight, eight years? Eight years. We've, we didn't run in 12. We got cancelled, obviously. We went back in 14, ran it uh, together. Um, and then we've done a few runs since. So it's been oh. a great pleasure. Uh, my, by the way, my wife beats me every time. <laughs> Only once I've beaten her, and that was with Ian by my side. And it was a Sunshine Coast half marathon. And we got to the 18K mark, and I was feeling really, really good. And I said to Kerry, I said, how are you feeling? She goes, I'm feeling terrible. And I said to Ian, let's go. And we took off. <laughs> And it's no time I've ever been up. So the Billy Moore story, I'd love to take a little bit of a journey if I can. Tell you, obviously, uh, how I end up to be sitting right here. Um, and it combines, uh, obviously, my life in a little country town in Queensland, uh, moving my way through to playing professional rugby league, to then venturing into small business where I've been at the coalface for the last 20 years here on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, I had a pub in Toowoomba as well, but... Uh, obviously, I'm now a, a restaurateur and uh, been doing that on and off for, for 20 years. So for those that are listening that have um, their toes in the small business world, uh, you're speaking to someone who's at the coalface with you. So uh, I have sympathy, empathy and understanding of what we all go through. And the, the small business industry uh, of Australia, to me, is the heartbeat. And we've seen that, obviously, with the current climate, how important small industry is our small business is to uh, the Australian economy, if not the global economy. economy. So it probably gives me a little bit of satisfaction to realise if they didn't, now the world can really look back and see how important we are and what all small businesses do do. So Billy Moore, I come from a little town called Wallangarra, which is on the New South Wales-Queensland border on the New England Highway. My house is 50 metres to the Queensland side of the border. Thank God. <laughs> Even though I was born in Tenerfield, New South Wales, because there's no hospital in a town of uh, 300 people. Um, so that's 18 kilometres south, I say, into enemy territory. But 7th of May 1971, my mother gave birth, and uh, she assured me that while I was born in New South Wales, I was rushed back across the border for the oxygen time to infect my lungs. Uh, and uh, I grew up in this little town of 300 people. My dad was a meat worker, um, and unfortunately that meat work shut down in the early 80s, and he was just a labourer after that, working in the orchards and in uh, the local uh, ammunitions base in Wollongarra. And my mum was a school teacher, and she was probably the key driving factor of my life, someone who really wanted the best for her four, four children. Uh, I was the youngest of the four, I always say I was the, the product of evolution. She got three wrong and I finally got it right. No, she was a great lady and, and made sure that all four of us had the best chance to, to have a crack at something in our lives uh, and probably one of the three most influential people in my life. So I was one of those kids from a little town, like so many are, a player of all, master of none. And then when I struck 15 years of age, I, I loved rugby league. That was probably my, the thing I loved the most. When I was 15, I was lucky enough to win a scholarship to go to a rugby league camp, Armadale uh, University, was that? And I caught my Armadale moment, one of the three major moments in my life. And at this camp, I turned up 700 kids from Australia and New Zealand, um, and they were some of the best of the best. Australian and New Zealand schoolboys, they were state representative players from Queensland and Wales from... 17, 16, 15, and I happened to be there, and I've come in green, green as green. You can gum leaves on the on the shirt, but I've turned up with such pride and passion. And while I was so far behind the level of the other players, what I did realise 
is I had a capacity to learn. Um, and if anything I can convey from the Billy Moore language, I removed the word fail. First attempt, a first attempt in learning. That's what fail stands for me. It's all about learns. And I went on this camp and they were so much better than me, but I realized for the first time in my life, I was this good, they were that good, but I actually got to quantify success for the first ever time in my life. And for me, that was a watershed moment because I realized I had the capacity to match the best. I just had to copy it. And when you think about it from that angle, whoever invented the wheel, they got it right. <laughs> but you don't reinvent the wheel as the saying goes because why? It works. So I saw perfection. I saw the best junior players in Australia and New Zealand and what they had, I wanted. And the head overseeing coach was the great Wayne Bennett. And he gave a generic training program to all 700 kids. But to me, it was my program. It was my program. I got this program. So I went back to Wollongarra and virtually trained every day. But the thing about that too is, and if we just pop up the slide, I put in there because one of your um, idols at the time was Wayne Pearce. He was the yep. Australian captain, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Now, um, when Wayne Bennett, you know, arguably the world's best ever rugby league coach, came to you and said, Billy, I've prepared for you a specific training program that'll get you to the next level, you felt like that was a personally written program for you. Yeah, 100%. I, I took charge of that program. And so I went back to the little town and I, I trained as I said, for those three years. It wasn't until the third year when I was 17 that it all happened. And I made representative football. But you know what's interesting? When I came back at 15, everybody in the town and around my age group, year older, year younger, there was about 20 of us. When I came back, everybody jumped on the bandwagon. Everyone saw this program and I said, it's yours. Yeah. As much as mine. This is our program. This is our blueprint for success because I told about these other kids. And I caught my Armadale moment for that program and, and that ability to actually see what the best was, to copy it and then become the best was a pivotal moment in Billy Moore. And when I say the Armadale moment, it's about seeing success and then chasing it. And the key driver of that to actually formulate a real good plan is you've got to find out what Ian knows that I doesn't. What do you know that I don't? And if you're successful, and if everyone's out there in small business, ask yourself this question. What is the best in your industry? Who is the best? What does it look like? What does success look like? Go and copy it. And for me, the three questions you ask is how you do it, why do you do it, and where? Whereabouts did you get the idea to start? How do you go about doing what you do? And the key real kicker, though, is why do you do what you do? Because you spent your whole life in doing what you've done. You've had massive amounts of learns on the journey, and the why for you is what I want to take off you straight away. So if I can find out why someone is the best in the world at something, I can take all their learns, all those years of learning along the way, all those things you might call mistakes that have shaped them, and put them into my model, bigger, bigger stronger, faster. Because that, to me, is the key. To get bigger, stronger, faster every day is the way you keep one of the key fundamentals for success, which I believe is called momentum. You can do that, but you've got to take all the learns that are in your life around you, put them in your model, and eventually it spits out a bigger, stronger, faster model. Yep. And so um, you then – so we talk about the bottom of our triangle. We talk about – you know, everyone above you in the triangle is bigger, better, knows more than you, you can ask more information from, and you get sucked up that vortex. And that was your Armadale moment. All yep. of these amazing young footballers, and then you go back and you train, and probably one of the most important things was that everyone dropped away as it got colder, and you turn up one day and it's just you on your own. 
Hundred percent. And they're the days yeah. that mean the most. Well, they do those days when you didn't feel like training, and the little guy on the shoulder goes, "Mate, you're fit enough. You're good enough." But they're the days that really make the difference. Because I call the crossroads. The road is success. Because what we're talking about here is how do you become the best that you can become as an individual, as a group, as, as, as a, a company or a team, whatever it is, to become the best at some point on that journey, the road of success, you're going to come to a crossroads, a point where you can go, oh, wait on, actually, I have a hard decision to make. By actually going and doing it, that's what makes the difference. It, it's the, it is that. It is those days where it's rainy when we go jogging. Is it rainy? Is it cold? How can yeah. I, I can do it tomorrow. Oh, no, I'll do it this afternoon. But it's actually forcing yourself to get up and, and do that that makes the most difference at the end game. Well, it does. And you know the key, wrapping around something really poignant right now, it's in difficult times when opposition start to falter and fall away. As they stay the same or even go backwards because the excuses are so good to not train, as they go down, if you go up, the gap here is more noticeable. And, and you've done that before. Mm. We'll get to that part of the story because that's not the first time where you've gone into somewhere and you've come out out of you know whatever's going on right now and come out better, stronger when you're ready to start again. Because yep. from that training camp, you then started making your way up the ranks. Yeah, well, I went away and, as I said, three years, I, I went away to junior football trials, didn't make it, and then when I was 17... I went away and I made my first representative team. And over the next 10 weeks, I just kept making the next level, one after the other. And I was I was dumbfounded. I, I loved it. I, I was born into it and I, I was in my zone. I suppose it's about taking a chance and making the most of it. And that's what you set your life up for, is to be prepared for the chance. I trained three years for this one chance. And over those 10 weeks, I went from not playing representative football to playing in the Australian under-17 final at the Sydney Football Stadium. It was the curtain raiser to Australia versus Great Britain test in 1988. So we were the under-17s. We were the, the, the leading game. 34 kids played that day. 33 were contact, contracted, except me. I got me of the match. So you're the only one that goes out onto that pitch that hasn't got a contract for the following year to play for one of the clubs. Correct. You win man of the match? Man of the match, yeah. Win man of the match in that game. You come off. And your mother's your manager. Mum's the manager. And I had four people at the gate, four scouts, Brisbane, Parramatta, Penrith, and the mighty North Sydney Bears. And they've said, basically, where have you come from? I said, I've been here. You just never noticed me. Mum's so let's go back again. she got Brisbane. Yep. Who's won? Well, they won six premierships. Um, Parramatta. Four premierships. Like ridiculous um, undergrowth base of, of the local area. Yep. And Penrith, two premierships. You talk about the undergrowth base. Those three are the three largest rugby league junior bases in the world. Yep. Your mum, your manager. Yeah. She, um, she was very pragmatic. She was a school teacher, so she was sharp. Anyway, she said, um, son, you're going to play North Sydney. And I said, mum, no worries, I won't argue with you. Two years later, having a coffee, I said, mum, why did we go to North? She goes, no, the real reason I sent you to North is I knew North weren't that strong. She said, they only had one Billy Moore. Brisbane had 30 in the pipeline. Paramount had 25, Penrith had 20, Norse had one. She goes, I had to give you the best chance because I wasn't quite sure how good you were because 
for six months prior, I'd never played yeah. at, at that football. So she goes... You're very smart. Yeah. And because that is true, you know, you, you would have gone out and busted your door. Now, North Sydney had a specific strategy, had he not won a premiership for so long, to go and get some big-name players. We then went and purchased three wonderful players, uh, Mario Maltese Falcon Fennec, mm-hmm. the late, great Peter Jackson, uh, who was a superstar, and another player had a huge influence on my career, Pat Jarvis, who was a police sergeant from Newtown. Um, Newtown uh, in uh, Sydney. Uh, he was a police sergeant there. So you, that, that's t- was tough streets. It's tough now, but back then, we're talking 40 years ago when he was a sergeant there, you know, Newtown was a rough, tough area. Anyway, he arrested a bloke called Jeff Fennick. And we know who Jeff Fennick is. Well, if you don't, he's a triple world champion. Yeah. And Jeff um, was told by Pat Jarvis, you either go and train at Johnny Lewis's gym or you'll end up in jail. So Jeff Crossroads. Took the right road. They brought those three players, dumped him into the, the young um, broth of players. We had bubbling away on, on, on the stove, and bang, instant difference. But wait, let's go back a step because you had set yourself your, you, you know, you've been a goal setter yep. from way back then, yep. right? And you'd set your goal to play first grade state of origin, yep. um, which is generally New South Wales and Queensland, and for Australia. Yep. What were those goals? Well, that, that's the engine. I talked about the road of success. Goal setting. Goal setting is the engine that I use. And, and I was just doing some this morning. We did it just before lunch. But that, that to me is the suit. Ladies and gentlemen, set goals. <laughs> if you want to go to the road of success, you want to chase a dream, you've got to have guideposts on that road of success to get you there. But I set mine as a 17-year-old when I drove out of Wollongar on the Greyhound bus. And what I said, I wanted to play first grade uh, by 23. I thought I'd play for Australia by the time I was 26. And in between, I'd play uh, State of Origin. So I've turned up at North Sydney thinking that, you know, it's going to take me five or six years to get up to speed. And actually, weight-wise, I started, as I said, at 78 kilos. I didn't hit my peak weight till I was 23. It just happened that the performance level didn't mirror the weight I was able to perform at a higher level quicker. So I played first grade before I turned 18. And that's the key, or one of the keys of goal setting, is you must constantly check where you are in the goals. Because my first big goal, huge goal, when you leave well and go, to play first grade. Mate, to get a contract, no one ever got one. But to then go on and play first grade uh, was enormous. And that was, I said, that was down the road, over the hill, around the corner, on yeah. my road to success. That's how far I was in the distance. But I had these little, little goals to get there. And one of them was, I want to be the best of so the top six players on the field every weekend. Something tangible, something realistic. So if I knew if I was in the top six on the field every game, every time I put my boots on around that field, I'll be in the top six, then I knew I was on a continual journey of getting better. Because that's a measure. It's a measurable. It's a measurable, yeah. and you've got to have measurables. Yeah. And they've got to be realistic. Because it's about guideposts. There's no point having the guideposts mm. over hill around the corner. Yeah. Because it doesn't work. So they were measurable. Because I knew, though, to be the top six every week when you're around professional people, you've got to be at your best. And it's not just on game day. It's all week. Yep. You know, uh, Excellence isn't a sometime thing. Excellence is an all-time thing. You must do it all the time. If you want to be good, if you want to be the best, with the best. So we've turned up. I've set this goal. I've, I've, I've set the, the, the manager of playing first grade, and I did it the first year in, and then we added these players into the system. And we're playing Manly at Brookvale, the last trial game of the 1991 preseason, and I had my second big moment of my life. Armadale moment, number one. Number two is my broken jaw moment. So we're coming to the end of the game. Two minutes to go. We're leading by about 30, 
35 points. We've just scored a try. We've come back to take the kickoff. And I was the smallest of the forwards. So my job was to catch it and I give it to the big Neanderthal. So they kick off, I catch it, and I was going to give him the ball. I thought, no, I'll take it myself. I ran back into the line and I got tackled. And as I fell, uh, another player from Manny, Des Hazlers, dived in the top of his head, hit my lower jaw. And basically my my lower jaw just cracked. I had a mouth guard on the top, but obviously not on the bottom. And my jaw cracked and the bone went through my face. And uh, I was laying there and a lot of blood, blood heavily concussed. They took me into the chain sheds and everybody has come, as, as they do, and as you would always do, come to con, uh, console me. Anyway, Pat Jarvis, the last guy in the room, he walks in and he said two profound statements in my life and this is the first one. When no one else was around, he sat down beside me, looked me in the eyes. He said, in the face of adversity, there's always some good. You just have the courage and the want to find the good. In the face of adversity, there's always some good. You just got to have the courage and the want to go and find the good. Basically saying, if you're determined enough at the crossroads, the moment is now to show how much you want to be a success. No matter how big the adversity is, that moment, I'll call it my broken jaw moment, that was setting Billy Moore on a path at a higher level than I would have ever achieved before. What are you thinking when he says that to you? Piss off. <laughs> so Pat, piss off. So I go away uh, and I'm wide shut because the break was so bad. I had the wires through my teeth. And I was wide shut for um, 14 weeks. Uh, and in that time, the comp started the final week. So I'm out 14 weeks. Norths win 13 games. So my team are winning, but I'm not playing. And my number 13 jersey that I had got the year before, I took off another bloke. I had that jersey. It was being worn by that guy that, that I took off. That bloke wasn't just any other bloke. Well, that bloke's a superstar. If you know Ray Lee, his name's Gary Larson. Yeah. Um, so you took Gary Larson's shirt off him at mm, club level, yep. was wearing it, broke your jaw, he got it back. He got it back. And, and on that journey, not only to get it back, he then went on and played for Queensland, 24 straight games, uh, superstar, played for Australia. Uh, I was good, he was great. That, that's the humility aside, that's the reality. Super, super player. And it's so torn because it's my team, but I'm not doing it. I'm not winning. It's not winning without me. And Pat Jarvis was the only guy who recognised. So when you get the wires taken out, they cut them, remove them, and it takes about two weeks for that to play in because it's got to make sure everything's functioning. And you've lost all muscle control too. It's like when you break an arm, all your muscles. Well, I eventually get to a stage where I'm ready to go back playing and uh, I was struggling. And Pat Jarvis came up and he could see that things weren't right. And he took me aside. He said, what's wrong? I said, mate, I'm struggling because they're winning and that jersey is mine. I deserve that jersey. Uh, I want it. It's mine. I deserve it. And he said, no, no, no. And this, to me, is a more profound statement than the first one he said. He looked at me and he goes, that's your problem. He says, you think you deserve that jersey? I said, yeah, I do. I said, I've worked hard for it. He goes, so has Gary. Mm -hmm. Gary's had three knee reconstructions. Now, he's five years old and he's been working for a long time to play first grade and now he's got that jersey. He said, you know, the key thing here is in life, you don't deserve anything. It's what you make and what you take you deserve. And that, I reckon, is another key thing in business. As soon as you think you deserve success, you deserve an outcome, you become weaker. You don't deserve anything in life. It's not what you deserve. It's what you make and take every day. So um, if we just go to the slides, um, you have got um, – so you're, you're playing rugby league. You um, – 
you become the sixth at the time the sixth youngest ever person eighth, to play eighth youngest. eighth youngest ever to play first grade. Yeah. Um, tell us about your first grade debut. Uh, round one of nineteen eighty nine, Norse played Balmain. I started in the twenty ones. We won the game, which was good. But Norse and Balmain about similar size in the juniors area. Won that, and then they, as I come off the field, I was seventeen years, ten months. They said, "I want you on the bench for reserve grade." The coach for the second side. I went, "What?" He goes, "You're on the bench." Anyway, uh, it got to five minutes before the end of the match, and I'm thinking, wait on, they're not going to put me on. I'm thinking, how good is this? I don't care, I'm a reserve grader. G'day, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a reserve grader. <laughs> Next week, we played Penrith, Penrith Park, play 21s, and we win the game, which is the first time Norse had won in a long time against Penrith, because as we said, massive junior base. Yeah. Norse is a shrimp, really. Mm-hmm. We won that, and they said as I walked off the field, you're on the bench for reserve grade. Said, so, okay, did it last week, can do it again, no drums. So I sit on the, uh, at the back of the box, five minutes to go, they're not going to use me again. How good's this, ladies and gentlemen? Because these are the days before interchange. Yeah, I'm saying, yeah. they're not going to use me, so, well, I'm still reserved, brother. Uh, I believe I am anyway. I don't care what I take the field. <laughs> I walk off the bench, and Frank Stan, the former Australian coach, is the North Sydney first grade coach. He goes, Billy, I want you on the bench for first grade. And I've gone, what? He said, you're on the bench for reserve grade. <laughs> for first grade, sorry. I went, oh, shit. So, okay, so I sit at the back of the, uh, the, the the box. Anyway, about five to go, maybe a bit long, maybe six or seven minutes to go. North are down about 30 nil. And I'm thinking, they're not going to put me on. 30 nil down, they're not going to use me. How good is this? I'm a first grader. And all of a sudden, the late grade Billy Teasel, the manager, who'd been a manager for 20 odd years, has turned and he goes, Billy, you're on. I went, what? He goes, you're on, son. I went, oh, shit. <laughs> so and I run, put the headgear on, shoulder pads, uh, take the field. But who you're playing? Penrith. Who won the premiership the year Yeah, before. so they're a good side. They're a great side. They're a great side. So we've taken the field and we've got the penalty, which basically means we get the ball straight back. And, I, and I've run past the hooker and captain, Tony Ray, and I said, I'll take it up off the tap which basically means he taps the ball, gives it to me, and I run straight into a set defensive line, which is a suicide run, but I wanted to test and see what it was. Anyway, I take it up, he taps it, gives it to me, and I run straight between Peter Kelly, 115 kilos, Mark Guy, 112 kilos, I weigh 80 kilos, knock me out cold. I have, to this day, the shortest ever debut in history, eight seconds. So they carried you off on a stretcher. Carried me off, put me in, and they're going to wake up going, G'day, people! <laughs> Yeah, eight seconds, one hit up. So, so you, you, your goal was to play first grade at the age of twenty three, and you did that at seventeen, 17, 17 10, months. ten months. Yeah, seventeen, ten months. So that means you had to reset your goals. Hundred percent. So then you do really well. You, you know, um, you're getting to the point of the the um, team going well, more Sydney going well, um, and uh, you know we can go into the story a bit more then. But you look back now, and North Sydney lacked something to be able to win a premiership? Well, for me, I was at Norse. Um, I got there in, as an 89, won a premiership uh, first year in, and I've come in expecting to win. Uh, and I'll turn up at Norse, and there's this huge monkey on the back of the club where Norse hadn't been, hadn't made the grand final since 1943, I think it was, uh, hadn't really been a strong side since the early 50s. So I found when I turned Norse is they had a, a real lack of confidence. Uh, the monkey had grown so big and strong that they, they, they found it when the pressure was turned on that it was almost an easier out. Yeah. Uh, with Norse and the Bears, we're not supposed to win. You know? yeah. And I always take the mickey out of the club, but I was there for 11 years. 
I won a premiership in the reserve grade year one. The next 10 years were full-time first grade, and I played in seven semi-finals series out of the 10, and one of those we missed by, we came sixth when they had only five team semi-finals. We had the highest amount of points never to play semi-finals, 29 yeah. points. Um, so really, you could say, well, and that, that year we, we won 17 and lost, I think I lost six games and didn't make the semis. So we were a winning club in my era. Um, and that was a combination of eventually optimism, confidence. You've got to have confidence in what you do. And the, but that's built around hard work and the belief that, you know, the harder you train, the more honest you are with yourself and the rest of your team, that builds internal confidence. And you've got to have the internal drive. Something can't be an external force. Mm. To me, you've got to have inside yourself and your group an internal drive to success. And once you've got internal drive, internal pressure, then that is how real success is made and perpetuated. Because it's hard to be good, it's so much harder to be good for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And that's why over those, I played in four preliminary finals. So uh, preliminary final is to get into the grand final. So that's final. a game before. So I played in four of those. Unfortunately, I lost them all. Lost all four. And um, which I think is be a record, <laughs> a dubious record to have. And we lost two of the four in extra time, and all four sides had beat us. Uh, sorry, three of the four that beat us won the grand GF. Final. So we were, we were there. We are close. We never quite make it. And why, why do you think that is? When you ask the question, and I've sat long and hard, I think this. I think in the end, we got ourselves to a very good level. We missed that last little bit. We stopped improving when it mattered the most. When the real heat was on, uh, and I, I wouldn't put it at the blame of anybody, not not the coaches, not the players, but collectively as a group of people inside the organisation, when we got to the real fine point, the game before the GF, we stopped improving and we never played our best on that last big stage. And that will haunt me forever, really, because that's a sign of true greatness is when you can deliver on the biggest stage, the biggest moment. We never did it. I probably never played my best in those big games either. Mm. But I always said this, the hardest thing in rugby league to defend is something you've never seen. And that's what I mean by constantly improving. When you continue to improve and get better, whether it be in business or sport, whoever is your opposition, they're trying to they're trying to beat you. They're trying to sometimes mimic you. Like I talked about copying someone. They're trying to copy you, mimic you. They're trying to get the better of you. If you continue to develop and get bigger, stronger, faster, smarter, then you're always on the upper hand because you're the lead. They're the follower. And I think for the Bears, we missed improving. If we had grand finals played in July, early August, we would have won a couple of one. Yeah. I just found that in late August, early September, we basically got and played out. Yeah, and there was no peak. Um, tell me about you, and I know this is not you know, our normal flow, so we'll, we'll just work with yeah. this, whatever. Um, you did train with, um, you train in the same boxing yeah. um, outlet as uh, Jeff Fennick. Now, um, Firstly, you basically got one put on you um, and someone was embarrassed that you couldn't fight. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Pat Jarvis comes back into the story. Uh, another good friend of mine, Steve Roach. Um, that uh, first um, the year uh, after I broke my jaw, I was at North Sydney Oval and we were playing Balmain. And, and they had a good side. They uh, played in the grand final and 88-89. So they were on slight Wayne, but they still had four or five internationals and, and three or four of those in the Ford pack. Uh, Wayne Pierce, Paul Syrian, uh, Benny Elias, Steve Rosen. So four internationals and really, really good internationals in that team. So um, in the middle of the game, we had this set play where the front 
player would run into the defensive line. It's basically a shepherd. Hopefully, somehow break up the, the defensive line, whether it be a situation where you uh, knock them over or put them off balance, and you would um, uh, create a hole and, and your player would run through, second man play, we call it, and that would allow opportunity. And when I did that, I ran a block play for Greg Florimo. I knocked over a, a big front row of Steve Roach, yeah, international front row, one of the toughest you'd ever see. And Greg Florimo's run 60 minutes and scored. And to say Stephen Roach was upset would be an understatement. <laughs> he got up and proceeded uh, to use my head as a speedball. And uh, there's a couple of scars you might be able to see here. And there's one up in the eye there that, uh, that, that was, a, was the beneficiary of that. Uh, so he, he, put, he put a couple on you. Oh, yeah, he did. And, <laughs> and he's much bigger than you, too. Oh, he is. Yeah, yeah, he's huge. Oh, I was getting up off the ground. All these excuses. But in the end, he won. I lost. <laughs> but um, anyway, the punches stopped when Pat Jarvis got involved and, and they had a little bit of a set too and then uh, I said to Pat, oh, she's lucky, lucky you, you, lucky you turn up, otherwise I would have stuck into him. He goes, mate, you're shit house. You can't fight at all. He said, how about um, I'll, I'll teach you how to fight? And I said, no worries. So the next day he picks me up his little V-dub, we drive over the Harbour Bridge from north to south, go into Newtown to the Police Boys Club and I got to meet the great Johnny Lewis and uh, superstar and Equally influential guy in my life. The reason I, I sit here having done what I, I was able to achieve in my football career was under Johnny Lewis's tutelage, I was able to become super fit. You were, the, you were, you were arguably the fittest player in rugby league. Oh, if not, it'll be close to it, yeah. yeah. And, and basically, because I had that advantage, uh, he made average good, you know, and, and I was able to basically wear people down. Because we had very limited interchange, you couldn't go, come on and off. Eventually, you get tired, and, and, and I'd get the upper hand at some point. And Norse itself had a really fit team. You had Gary Larson, Dave Fairley, Mark Soden, all those guys in the forward pack. We were, uh, had a really supercharged, uh, fit side. So we had good internal pressure, and we all had the standards. We all set for each other. So I've turned up this day at the gym, and Johnny goes, and Johnny's doing things like this. You know, a pugilist break, and I said, mate, welcome. Come on in here. And he said, mate, Billy Moore, I like the way you play. Good young kid. And he said, uh, I hear you can't fight. You fight like shit. That's the right, Johnny, I can't fight. He said, mate, I'll show you how to fight, son. Come with me. Walk into the gym. He goes, I've got a few blokes you'd like to meet. And inside the gym. He goes, here we go. Here's Jeff Fennick, triple world champion. Oh, hey, what's that? He goes, here, Jeff Harding, just beat Dennis Andres, world champion. So I said, hey, Jeff, how are you? He goes, there's someone else you've got to meet. And I said, oh, who else? He goes, this bloke's bigger than those two. And I'm thinking, triple world champion, world champion. Who could be better than that? And he goes, Boys, is he here? They've all gone, yeah, yeah, he's here. They're all in on it. All of a sudden, out of the toilet comes Block and Roach. The guy, <laughs> so the same, same guy that just put some chops on you on the football field. That, the day out. before. So the, the day before, the guy that beats me up actually trains at the same gym. And he was good. Yeah, Billy, I got you. So he was great. But I, I was lucky enough, I trained there. Uh, and I got to see perfection in that sport. Um, I was there with Dr. Jeff Fennick. I'm going to have a spar against Jeff. <laughs> One little story. But also, I got to see Costa Zoo. Wow, what a fight he was too. Two, two of the greatest fighters of all time. But under Johnny Lewis, what it was was raw honesty. And But that continued too because when you, you, you're super fit, you turn up for training, it used to be hard to turn up for first grade training, now it's easy. Yep. You, you get picked for you say, uh, for Queensland, sorry. <laughs> there is someone here that says that you'd, um, Malcolm reckons you'd look better in a, in a blue shirt. Um, <laughs> but, um, so you, you get picked for Queensland. Yeah. And that pace is... Full on. Yeah, well, I did. Actually, the tie in there, I actually was at Johnny Lewis's gym. So, Norse played Balmain on the Sunday. I actually got man of the match, but we lost the game. 
and that's an unusual thing. You don't yeah. normally get a man on the match no. on the losing side. No, and, and, and so um, the next day, uh, we didn't train quite as much back then, so we're talking 1992. Um, so I just go to my own training with Johnny Lewis. So I did my 18 rounds, and Johnny Lewis goes, Oh, Millie, you're a chance of playing because Queensland got beat the week before in uh, game one of the 92 series. Because, man, you're a chance of playing for Queensland. I said, Oh, I don't know about that. But I went back to my house that I was living at opposite the North Sydney Leafs Club, and uh, my mum, of all, happened to be there. She never came to Sydney. Uh, I think she was there twice over the course of my career. Um, she took the phone call from the Queensland selector, head of selectors, that um, I'd been chosen to play for Queensland. I remember opening up the door to the house. Like, my mum's just running. She's jumped. And my, I caught her in my arms. And I was one of the most vivid moments of my life. I'll never forget it. And the great thing was she came. That was 1992. Game two was my debut. She saw that game. It was my only game she saw me play because uh, she had a massive stroke the following year. Um, it was funny because I scored in the first 10 minutes of that debut game um, and she was sitting beside my two brothers and uh, she gets very focal, very carried away, very very biased, my mum. She goes, oh, what's this happening? What's happening? She goes, your son's just scored. Your son's just scored. <laughs> oh, not bad, not bad, not bad. Uh, that was 10 minutes into my, into my career and I thought, how easy is this? This is <laughs> Mate, the next 16 games and uh, 70 minutes. I never got near the try line, <laughs> but but it was great that Mum was there. And, uh, and but the pace, the pace, the pace oh. is just relenting. It's like yeah. you know when people go into property, when people start doing what we're doing here, you've got this pace of um, subdivisions, and I've got to get this through council. I don't know who to talk to, and you're not actually seeing things quite clear. It's like just a big fuzzy muddle, yeah. and you just you just feel like you're grabbing at straws. Yeah, well. 100%. When I, when I took that See, thing, I got emotional. Yeah, I've, never heard, I've never heard that part of your mum. No, no, yeah, yeah, it was great. I, I get emotional too when I think about it. I've told yeah. her that many times. And, but it said to, for her to be there at that game uh, was very special for me. But for her to take the phone call. Because yeah, that's that, awesome. So I was 20 years old uh, when that happened, just before my 21st birthday. So my mum had been on that journey the whole way. And you were supposed to play first grade at 23, and you're yeah. playing Queensland at 21. Yeah. So it, it was to me, it was uh, an amazing experience. But it was, it was just a reward that the first person who knew I played was her, because she was basically the driver behind yeah. the Billy Moore machine. Um, but pace, taking the field. So I was so fortunate that my first Origin game was in Brisbane for a, a Queensland player to play at Lang Park, as we called it back then. It was so special. And I always said, you don't run onto Lang Park, you float, because there is so much fucking adrenaline. Yeah, the crowd is so powerful. Uh, and the, the noise reverberates around the stadium and I get to get tingles thinking about it. That's one of the greatest experiences to come out that tunnel where we're um, and to play, as I said, just on 21. It was a dream come true. And in the room, before I go out, around everywhere are some of the greatest players of all time. You've got, oh, I'm in the room with Alan Langer, Kevin Wallace, Melman, Hinker, Peter, Jackson, Gary Belcher, all these superstars. And I'm doing what I said before about the learns. I'm a human sponge. The Armadale moment, I'm looking at these guys wondering, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Why, after all the time that Alan Lane's been playing footy, why is he doing what he's doing before he has on the field? It's, to me, it's a great learning experience. So I've always been able to pull back a bit. And, yeah, oh, I'm a lunatic and I get emotionally wrapped up, but the whole time I'm still trying to learn, you know, trying to have, make myself bigger, stronger, faster, smarter. So we've taken that field, and I had in my mind, this is what it's going to be like. Oh, my God. I nearly started crying. The first five minutes, you could not. Sensory overload. It was coming at you too fast. 
You're overloaded, overloaded, overloaded. Couldn't breathe. Okay, what am I going to do? What's my job? Okay, well, I should have been over there. What's that? What's he doing? How's he doing this? What's coming at you? You've got the best of the best coming at you and doesn't relent. Minute one is as fast. It's 80 minutes. Minute, minute 79, yeah. it's just as fast. That's the difference between normal football and origin is it is unrelenting because it's the best of the best. And talking about if you're doing something like, like in a subdivision and, and, and it's coming out really fast, what do you do to overcome it? For me, peel it back. Peel it back. Have confidence and trust in yourself. The base you've built, the knowledge that you have, the people around you that you can use to sound things off, they're the ones who can guide you in that moment of learn. You need to surround yourself with the right people. Peel it back and you've got to have confidence. We talked about confidence before and trust in yourself. And that is born out of the pillar that Billy Moore lives his life by, honesty. Mm. What do you need to do to be good? Your arm Armadale moment. That's what I want to be. How do I become the best? Well, you honestly have to go on that path, that journey, the road to success. If along that journey you use honesty as the pillar that makes you succeed and go forward at times of crisis, at times of sensory, sensory overload, at times when it gets really, really tough, that's when you're going to put yourself in the best position to be able to cope. Hmm. And so you get this sensory overload and hooked to you, and this is what happens in property too. You know, you go in, you've got this sensory overload of trying to get this deal done, you get through the deal, and then you might say you did a, you know, our first subdivision was a massively big subdivision we shouldn't have done, right? We lost packet loads of money. Now, in that subdivision, there was all these things going on, and I couldn't see what was going on. And um, then our next subdivision was a simple one of, you know, a block of land, and we just had to put another block behind it, right? Yep. So that sensory overload meant I came back, and then all of a sudden I went, oh, this is easy. So you go to Queensland, then you come back to club football. Two great sides of my era were the Canberra Raiders and the Brisbane Broncos. Why? Because they had the best players and the best coaches and the best systems and structures in place, the best junior bases flying through, all these things. But, you know, that was always the game that I used to love to play, and it was the highlight because I was playing against my fellow Queensland teammates, and I knew how good they were. And it was always the game to test yourself, you know, to actually put a, a line in the sand and say, well, this is how good Billy Moore is and, and, and Billy's team is, and this is what, how good the Bears are. So I've gone from the century overload on... The, on the Wednesday we played, but we played the following weekend. So we used to have like this big break. Yeah. We played on the Wednesday night and we played the Broncos on the Sunday. So four. So you back up. Back up. And, and you're sore. You are sore. Because you're using muscles that, because yeah. you're going for 79 minutes yeah. rather than the club football. I, I always found that I'd play club football and you, if you played a really hard club game, you'd be sore for 24 hours. Yeah. Origin was 72. Yeah, right. Uh, it was just the three days of soreness right. and, and it got worse for about... But with the Broncos, you amped up because you knew it was going to be a great game. And I remember having had the sensory overload. And prior to that experience at Origin, the previous overload was, was the Broncos. You were stressed because you'd have a situation where their forward pack, Glenn Lazarus and co, would drive the ball forward. So you were backpedaling, backpedaling. And then the ball goes from Kerry Wallace to Alanger to Kevin Wallace. Three superstar, dangerous players with ball in hand who can run and challenge and test the defensive line and basically find whether you'd been honest or not, whether you'd actually had, had not actually taken the extra couple of steps you should have, whether you actually had had a breather and almost let yourself down, that expose that. That expose the weakness. That's what Alan Langer and Kevin Wallace are so good at, is that expose a lack of honesty in yourself. Mm-hmm. You think, oh, I'm going pretty hard. Well, no, you're not, because yeah. they're going to show you you should have gone a bit harder. Mm-hmm. So that was the, always the base game where we went, wow, this is the, the level to test yourself. And for me, that was overload. 
So I've come back from origin where you're going, oh my God, this is tear factor, I'm buckling. And then you obviously have your learns. So I've come back to play in the Broncos and after five minutes they're going, shit, this is slow. It's very sluggish. Oh, wait on. I actually can see what he's doing. I actually can see where, where Alan's going to do. Like, I know what Alfie's going to do. I, they, they've set this up now. Oh, this, this will now lead to that. Oh, wait on. The guy in the background that I never noticed, he's going over there. Why? Because they're going to actually go this side, then they're going to go there. I never seen that. You know, I never, I never, not, I, not it was over. Yeah. I couldn't, you could, but also now, because of the learns, all of a sudden I developed and got better, and I could see things unfolding that I never saw before. Mm. And that's how you, that's how you become better. You've got to go against the best to be the best. And that's right. I mean, you, you talk about you think about Malcolm Gladwell, right? So the outliers, you've got to, you know ten thousand hours to become an expert in your field, right? You're almost an underlier because the outlier relies on the fact that um, you get certain put in a certain position, and by doing that, you get much better. Yep. Bill Gates, right? Bill Gates started Microsoft, but his outlying position was that he had access to a computer lab that no other student had access to because he got really friendly with one of the janitors who would let him in at night time and he'd start his computer programming, right? Mm-hmm. So he was an outlier, like the Jewish lawyers that did really well in the US because no one else wanted to handle litigation, they handled it, right? Uh, and they actually did, I think it was the Polish, he, he mentions that the old Polish under-23s or under-21 ho- ice hockey team, the national team, um, they worked out that out of the 23 players, um, 19 or 20 of them were born between distinct months. And the reason behind that was because they realised that um, the age group before you went into the next age group was between a certain date. So these guys were more developed in the age group that was younger, yeah, yeah. which meant they developed at the age of 12, 13, 14, stronger and bigger, which meant they actually had more weight to them, which meant they could push people around more. But what happened to that? They then got picked for all the rep teams, which meant they actually had more time on on the ice, yep. which meant they got more exposure to more games and more playing. So when you play Queensland, you can't help but to get better at what you did. Yep. And when you play around development and property, you can't and around the right people, you can't can't help but to get better. And so you do that, you see it all slow down, you actually play for Australia as well. Yeah, I did. So it took a couple more years of origin, uh, but in nineteen ninety five I ended up cracking it through the Australian side. Um playing for Australia is difficult, because um, it's the best of the best. And Australia get beaten very often, so they don't turn the side over very much. Yeah, yeah. And usually, then that's when opportunities present themselves. Like in life, we talk about you know tough times when opportunity presents. You got to be ready to take it. So for me, the opportunity eventually came in the 1995 World Cup tour, which was a great experience. So I, I, I when you set out on a journey in sport to play for your country, um, anyone that says that's not really a, a long distance key driver. Uh, I'd question that because to represent your country and to hear your national anthem played wearing your, your, your colours of your country is a, is a dream come true. Mm-hmm. So I got to do that on three occasions um, and the first was in England uh, in, that, in that World Cup tour. So um, so in the midst of all of this, um, you're 28? Uh, no, no, by this stage uh, I'd be, I was 25. Yeah, 25, but at the age of 28 oh, yeah. the Super League war hits. Uh, Super League War hit is at that, that, that time, so that time, that, right, 95. Okay. So Super League war, war started, it was amazing. It started in 95, uh, and then 1997, actually, there was two competitions happening. So we, we had um, Murdoch, who basically came in and started a breakaway league. Yep. So basically split the half of them stayed with the existing, um, the ARL, yep. and the rest of them went with the NR, which is well named the Super League. Correct. Um, they... Your Bears team 
decided to make a decision which ultimately ended the team? Yeah, we did. We had the opportunity. Um, we were courted by um, Super League to go across and um, the leaders of the club, the management, decided to stay loyal to the ARL. Uh, and oddly, in the end, I, mean, I look back on it retrospectively, um, if we had a jump ship... Uh, Probably still be alive today. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, but you merged, they end up merging with... The Eagles? So Eagles. we merged with Manly, which is our arch enemy, and uh, the, to form the Northern Eagles, the, the Beagles. Um, so I was 28 at that stage. Um, so this was... Uh, and that's a, like, well, that's a pretty decent rivalry for two teams that yeah. they, they don't like, didn't like each other very much at all. Critical mistake. Yeah. If Norse... <clears throat> Manly don't need to have anybody because Manly love to be on their own and they love to be hated. I'm sure every league in the world... Yeah, it's like, you know, that, that old saying, like, I always support two sides, the, the, the Bunnies and whoever's playing Manly. Correct, yeah, exactly. You, <laughs> so you need that. Norse, if we were fragile enough to emerge, to me, obviously we should have, for me, I've always said that the team we should have merged with was Balmain. It should have been a merge between Norse and Balmain, geographically side by side, demographically very similar areas in Sydney. Uh, and I think if that had happened, it would have been uh, the best opportunity for Norse had we not jumped to Super League. That was our next best option. We didn't do that. We went insolvent. Um, and the merger between us and Manly fell apart. I didn't stay around for that. I decided it was time to move on. Yeah, and so just before that happened, so you decided to retire once that merger happened. Um, while you're still in the ARL playing for um, the Bears, you, you, it's now 22, 23 years ago that you say one word that sets technically sets you up for a long distance in life. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, you're right. So that was, um, I, I played Origin, started in 1992, game two, and... Um, then in 1995, that Super League war we talked about uh, started to rage. And the narrative is important. When, when that happened, instantly it fractured the competition. And when they came to playing representative football that year, the clubs that were aligning with the ARL, they said, well, they're the only ones that can play in the representative football because it's ARL that actually look after the rep sides. So all the teams that, that were involved with Super League, they couldn't, their players couldn't play. For Queensland, it was hard because... We lost players from Brisbane, Canberra and Canterbury, three big teams that put players into the Queensland team. And we've only got a small, uh, we've got 16% of the player group inside the NRL to pick from anyway. Right. So when you take out those three sides, our, our player group shrinks uh, markedly more. So we were able to play, pick players like Al Langer, Steve Wallers, Kevin Wallers, um, Steve Randolph, all these superstars. Um, um, uh, he just retired. Right. He just retired. So we... We then uh, have a situation where our coach, Wayne Bennett, stood down because he was obviously... Yeah, Brisbane. Brisbane. Yeah. Uh, so he stood down and, and we had no coach. Um, we had nine rookies jump in, into the into the fray. Uh, and kick coach by Fatty Vaughan. Fatty Vaughan. Well, Dick Tosser Turner, the godfather of the Queensland Rugby League, rings him up and says, um, will you um, coach Queensland? And Fatty goes, never coach before. He goes, yep, I'll do it. I'll do it. No worries. <laughs> so he says, I'll he'll coach. So he rings up Trevor Gilmeister <coughs> and says... Trevor, you won't believe what's happened. He said, I'm going to coach Queensland this year's State of Origin Series. Trevor goes, bullshit. He goes, yeah. He goes, all right. And he starts laughing. And Fetty goes, don't laugh. He goes, why? He goes, you're going to be captain. <laughs> so we picked this no-name team. Um, and uh, it comes out to be folklore because that team up against – we had no Australian players in the current uh, sphere. Dale Shearer had played, but he'd been long retired. retired. Yeah. <laughs> um, they had 12 current nationals in that team. And we played them and we ended up winning 3-0. And I look back on that as the greatest example of a champion team versus a team of champions. 
uh, and collectively we came together. I used 18 players. I had one injury all series. I always say it's the greatest eight weeks of my life. But on that journey, game one of the series, uh, we're in the sheds just before the match, Sydney Football Stadium, sold out, packed house, and we've got nine rookies, and they're shitting themselves. They're nervous. Uh, like, you can hear the crowd through yeah. through the, the concrete. It's, it's pulsating. And you just see the players, the young guys, go, wow, this is, they're on the edge. They're peaking. It's really taking them outside their comfort zone. And the great Gary Larson turns to me and says, mate, mate, give them some of the Queenslander stuff, will you? So I told him a story that the late great Peter Jackson, my first roomie, told me when I was uh, uh, in my first camp. Um, I roomed in with him for two games, and you wouldn't find a prouder Queenslander. So what you saw coming down the, the tunnel was Peter Jackson personified. And what he said, basically, to be a Queenslander meant three things. And this is three wonderful things that I, I carry, for not only the Queenslander story, but in my life, and I try and pass on to people in business, but three great pillars said, to be a successful Queenslander, when you wear that maroon, he said there's three things. Help your mate, find a solution, and no excuses. So when you think about it, help your mate, how good is that? Find a solution. See, for me, the word professional, you know what that means? No excuses. Mm. To me, you're paid to find a solution. That's what you're paid to do as a professional. Professional rugby league player, we're playing New South Wales. The fact we've got uh, one retired Australian player up against 12 current nationals, that's irrelevant. Find the solution. We're paid to win. And ultimately, when you come off the field, no excuses. To me, if there's no such thing as a glorious loss for Queensland, what are you doing? You're putting lipstick on a pig. For me, <laughs> you basically, you're there to do a job, go and do it. And for me, when I'm in the world of ultimate professionalism, whether it be in sport or even in business, I don't really want to hear the excuses. Mm. Because my job as the leader, I'll give people the resources they need to do the job and basically now go and do it. Power by empowerment, I believe. And that's why help you mate find a solution and no excuses to me were the key drivers for the success of the Queens in Jersey. And that's been reverberated through the times. Yeah. So I've told these guys in the chain shed that this is what it is to be a Queens at a bang bang. I pumped them up. I said, the great Peter Jackson told me, and that's all about being a Queenslander. And I started screaming Queenslander. All 17 of us are screaming coins and I talk about lungs in the sheds. We've turned, we've walked down the race to go onto the field and Channel 9 put a camera in the tunnel for the first ever time. Never been there before. Didn't know it was there. So, so let's just get this right. The term Queenslander had existed for many, many years. Over 10 years. Over 10 years. Yeah. And Channel 9 decides to put a camera for the first time in the tunnel. Yep. And you've just routed up these young fellas. Yep. Um, and they captured the moment. And why don't we watch this moment right now? So you can hear that in the background here. Ray says, Billy Ball's obviously very pumped up. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, I, and I was. And that was a special game. We went out and we won that game 2-0. 2-0. So um, first, that's the first game ever. They, they yeah, had to a try. Yeah. And it'll never happen again. Mm. Uh, and what was amazing was those nine rookies they took their chances. Well, I mentioned before about opportunities. But we train in life, uh, whether it be in business or sport or with your family, to get ready for an opportunity, to take it. And these guys took it. Some of those guys never played again. They played that one series and that was it. That was it. Uh, and I, I look back on, and that were, they were the greats of that series um, because 
Craig, Teve, and you know those sort of guys had their one chance. They took it, and then they've moved off now into, I suppose, in history in Queensland rugby league. But that's what life's about. They had Andrew Johns, Brad Fittler, mm. you know, um, Jimmy Dimmick. They had absolute superstars um, in that team. Jeff Tuvey. They had so many great players. And they couldn't get through our defensive line. And our young guys in the back especially defended so well, you just see the frustration building in them. So I look back and think that, you know, that is talked about as the Queenslander call. But really when you peel it back, go into deep, you know, the, the psyche of what those blokes did, the way they took their chance and relished the opportunity was brilliant. It, mean, it means something much more than New South Wales has. Like, you know, yeah. and, and that's what made them. Now, um... Just tell us that one story about uh, the little uh, tussle you had with a uh, with uh, Mr. Barnell. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, that that was game two of that series. So we uh, we head down to Melbourne three weeks later, and like happens in Origin today, um, two teams will have simultaneous team meetings in their respective hotels. They'll get in their buses, they go to the ground and do battle. So you said Wales had their team meeting, and Phil Gould was there, the coach and the most successful coach in origin history, um, behind Melbourne Inga, of course. Uh, and he's uh, come in and, and he gave a powerful speech. He's really, really powerful. And he really, really gave that short, sharp, punchy speech. And he succinctly goes, three weeks ago, you got beaten by a bunch of bums. So those Queenslanders. He said, if anyone says Queenslanders are night, I want you to punch him in the head. That was the whole tactics they had. <laughs> that was it, right? <laughs> they didn't do anything else in their team. What he didn't realise is that Fatty Vorden now... Uh, our coach, his best mate was the junior water runner from New South Wales. He's run out and rang Fatty and told him exactly what had just been said. So he's walked into our hotel room, the other side of the city, a couple minutes later. He said, boys, I've just found the tactics for New South Wales. If you say Queenslander, you're going to get punched. Hands up, he's going to say it. <laughs> All of it. Everyone, 17 hands go straight up. <laughs> so we go to the match and five minutes into the game, we have a scrum. And uh, we go to the scrum and we know something's on. So we packed down our front row, Queenslander, and they've come up, they've got their guns loaded, ready to go. The New South Wales front row has popped up. Paul Harrigan, Jimmy Sedaris, Mark Spud, Carroll, they've popped up and gone, Queenslander, aren't they Queenslander? What was that? What was it that Queenslander? <laughs> and it was on. Oh, bang. <laughs> you know, I'm at the back, and if you ever see the footage, I'm at the back, and I've come running around looking, oh, you're busy, and everyone was busy. Everybody was involved, and I'm not condoning violence, but I eventually flink over a bloke called David Barney, nicknamed Barney. And he's got an operating voice like Gary Larson, like a few of us footballers. Speaks like this. And he goes, mate, what do you reckon? And I said, sweet. He goes, oh, no, let's dance. So we start throwing them. And um, I threw 100 punches like August. <laughs> After all that training with Johnny Lewis, he, he's, never ta- he's never spoken to me since. But, um... um he, Barnhill, said something to you, like after a tussle. Like, this well, is on YouTube. Like, you can yeah, see it. It's still can, there. It's embarrassing. But yeah, you watch it because I said I don't condone violence, but you, I certainly didn't profit. Well, there was it. no violence in it. You were just tussling, right? No, 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 no. Eventually, only one punch connected. We, we've wrestled and we've fallen on the ground. We're over behind the sidings. We've get up. We've broken away from the main group. And um, we've been over and we're actually sublime to give each other wedgies. That's how pathetic we were. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're shot. We're that tired. Right in front of the Great Southern yeah. Stand. So there's 40 odd thousand that stand, and they're pissing themselves laughing. At our pretend fight, we weren't well. We weren't pretending, but it looked like we were. And uh, he goes, um, David Barnhill goes, "Wait, I've had enough." I said, "Sweet." He goes, 
Well, they will call a draw. I said, sweet, let him go. And he hit me. He hit you after that. <laughs> uh, the moral of the story is never trusting yourself, horseman, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. So, um, so y- you retire at a fairly young age. Like, there's, there's, there's a good four to six years, if not longer, in you. Well, I'd actually planned. Uh, surprise, surprise. My goal setting and plans, which I, so I, I did this morning, I do it all the time. Uh, I had a plan. I, I was 28. I wanted to play at Norse for another four years, mm-hmm. 32, um, break 300 games, uh, probably set the club record. Um, then I wanted to go um, to England or France and play over there for two years, but across the whole off-season. I want, I want to immerse myself in another country's culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be 34. I want to come back, back to my home area and played uh, where I grew up yep. and played for nothing just to be back home. Yep. And then I would have... Um, Pursued my life. I got a science degree in physiology, so because that was a big push back then for the rugby league players to go off and do stuff yeah. as well. Yeah. Yep. So I, so I did that. I would either come back and go into the sports science side of rugby league, so I started a master's degree, or I would have gone down the path of being probably management. Yep. Um, either one of those was what I was planned. But then at twenty eight, my life changed as, as fast as I lifted up from Wollongarra. I basically went back down again, uh, and the speed was breathtaking. Because you moved back to, or you moved to the Sunshine Cup? Yeah, I did. I, I got basically um, left Sydney, went back to the sunny, got to the sunny coast, never been there, got involved in small business. I um, built a restaurant in Malulabar and bought a pub in Toowoomba, and they were all disasters. <laughs> and we mentioned, I said fail, first attempt in learning. Well, th- that was my first attempt in learning. Um, and it was a big learn. I rose up uh, from the Armadale moment and the broken jaw moment took me up to another level and then my life was going great. And I was 28, I was missing the North Sydney business community. I had plans. I had the next 10 years mapped out. And then at 28, it basically collapsed. Um, got pneumonia, which uh, obviously sort of quasi ended the career, but then North merged with Manly and I decided to come up here and go into small business. And I said it was... Uh, those first two years were shocking um, and peeling it away you went into a restaurant never having done that before no you just thought I'll go into hospitality you bought a pub in the end that pub had to be used as a men's pub yep. to, say, to, to be able to get something out of it yep um, and then you had this high end restaurant so and all the retail to be in high end restaurants would have to be one of the hardest ones first floor high end retail I remember people telling me oh, when, they, when they heard I was in trouble they said oh First floor restaurants in the, a um, tourist town are a recipe for disaster. And I said, no one told me that. No, no. And so you go into this restaurant and you're watching the numbers. So you went back to the the same um, lessons that you've always used. And you've got to go, my Armadale moment was, what does the best look like and how do I measure across that? Because you've, the restaurant was failing ridiculously. Yeah, I was burning um, cash. So you then rang, you know, someone yep. in the industry that yep. knew their stuff yep. and you said to them, what are the figures? What are they supposed to be? Because I don't even know what they are. Yeah. I'd eat in restaurants. Like <laughs> everyone that's watching this now, we've all eaten in restaurants, cafes, bars. You think, oh, that'd be nice to have one of those. So I went and built one because I had a bit of cash left over from my footy career. And in the end, uh, it was the worst mistake I made because I went underprepared. And I, I think back, and I'll talk about later on, but four key things that, uh, that transition across from sport into small business and what makes success there. But uh, I went underprepared um, and basically I hung myself out to dry. And over the course of two years, um, things went from bad to worse. You know, getting divorced, tore up heaps of money. Um, I think I was drunk for the majority of it. And it wasn't until 
uh, I started dating Carrie. Uh, I remember going into a, a dress shop with her and I went up to the counter while she was doing her thing. I was looking for someone to read and there was this Dalai Lama prophecy book. I opened it up and it just jumped out off the pages as Epiphany. If you're looking for a helping hand, look no, no further than the end of your own wrist. If you're looking for a helping hand, look no further than the end of your own wrist. To me, that's shit everything. What do I actually, the helping hand was here. I was looking for someone else to come in and solve my problems. I realised in that moment, I was the problem, but I was also the solution. And I was the one with the hands on the wheel. On that road of success, we talk about getting those, going past those guideposts, chasing those goals, becoming bigger, stronger, faster, smarter. Mm. There was more hands. I was waiting for someone else to come along. I'd forgotten my Armadale moment. I forgot that this real secret to success is finding what the best look like, copying it. What do you do? How do you do it? And why? Ask those questions. So that's when I went to people in the industry and said, what does a successful restaurant look like? And I got laid out there. That's the balance sheets, P&Ls. That's what the good ones look like. And I married them up with what I was doing and go, wait on. I could then quantify success. I could see the difference. I could see as a as a 15-year-old kid how good I was compared to those Australian schoolboys. Yeah. I got to see success. I quantified the difference. That was the roadmap to start the turn back out. And so you managed to, and so to this day, one of the most successful things you've done is be, be able to turn that restaurant around to a point where you got the figures so that you could sell it. Yeah, didn't make any money. No, but, but you I kept, sold it. I, saw, I kept my pants on, got out. Um, and, and tell you what I did do is I learned a lot. You learn a lot from what we talked about, the first attempt in learning, tell you what, when you actually have to scrape, or that development where you struggled the first time, I bet you learn a lot. Oh, that's, that that $300,000 loss yes. um, is, has taught me everything in property. And isn't it a shame you've got to go through the, the, burn, the burn, the pain, the negativity? Yep. Um, and I imagine, like, right now the corner we're in, what is going to be the learns? that we're all going to come through off the back end of coronavirus. And that's what I mean. It sounds terrible, but that's what the golden opportunity is right now. Mm -hmm. Now is the time to learn. Now is the time to take out of what presents itself. And in the face of adversity, there's always some good. As Pat said, he's going to have the courage and determination to find the good. So it took me a while, but eventually I turned it around and I get more excited about talking about the turn I do about talking about the peak playing for Queensland Australia. But I love that. It was sensational. Yeah, yeah. But the reality is when I talk to people at the end of this lens, I'm sure the majority have had a situation where they've gone through a dip. Something's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. A bad decision. Whether it's their own making or not, they're paying for it. Uh, probably financially, physically, mentally, whatever it is, they're trying to come back out of it. And for me, the recipe to getting out of it um, was great. And I, and I learned that the key things to turn on the turn, what got me out, one of them I know you love, is mentors. On the dip from North Sydney to top, when I was down, down in Sydney playing for Australia, to when I hit the rock bottom, I realised, you know, analysing back, I had no, man, had no mentors, had no one around me, had no one to bounce things off. I had no one to say, Billy, you're a fool. Well, Billy, actually, this is your learn here. I was sensory overload again. I was playing origin, I was overload. The negativities hit me so hard. I was out of my comfort zone. I was stressed. I didn't know what to do, where to turn, who to speak to. And I stopped talking. The helping hands were 
actually maybe to pick up the phone, to go and find someone, to drive, to go and ask someone. So the people who, who need help, mentors are very important, and to continue success. If you want to continue sustained success, having mentors around you is very important. Yeah, and what most people here don't realise is that you are extremely successful in business. You decided at that point in time. So part of that too is what Jarvis has said to you. You, 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 you don't deserve anything, right? And at the bottom of that, <laughs> you, you, you thought, I deserve for this restaurant to work. But no, well, the hands have to do yeah. what they have to do. So you decide never to go into retail, at least not restaurants ever again. Yep. But then all jellos pops up. Yeah, I had the opportunity. I had a, a coffee with, with a great friend of mine. Uh, he was in Orgello's for 20, he's been there 25 years. So before you bought into Orgello's, it had already been operating for 25. Yeah, so, so, uh, so I've been there eight years, so 17 years. Yeah, okay. Before. So uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm done signing and his former partner, Paul, who I, I ended up buying him out. Um, and I actually had a coffee with, with Simon. He, he said, uh, do you want to buy half of Orgello's? I went, piss off. <laughs> I'm going to go back in this. He goes, well, look, I know what happened at, at, at um, Earth. Um, this is a bit different. This beast is different. This is our figures. This is what the buy-in. This is the return on investment. Blah blah. blah. I went, oh, it looks a bit too good to be true. So what I did is I, I used a little bit of a uh, mouse from being burnt. I actually went and worked. Did due diligence for the first time in my life. Uh, it sounds terrible. I, I basically put a little bit of confidence in me finding the, the right answer rather than. Well, it doesn't sound terrible. I mean, to, uh, we've done that before. We were going to buy a restaurant, and we went and worked every week. For about six months in this restaurant, mm. um, for free, because I wanted to see the ins and outs. I wanted to firstly understand the business, but you'd already had an understanding of business. In the end, we, we didn't go ahead with that. But for you, you sat in the restaurant, and there was a reason that you saw the figures, but there was a reason that you were there. You were looking for where you could make improvements. Yeah, and, and, and what I noticed so quickly, the, the difference between Earth and Orgello's was... Um, the business model of Orgello's was so much better. It was smaller, tighter, family-friendly food, uh, whereas Earth was a big, palatial, five-star restaurant, um, and it was more top-end. Two-hour lunches. Yeah, and, and a lot, 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 lot larger overheads because of the size, all those sort of factors. Um, because of the, the, the style, it, it took more man hours to produce the food and, and the waiting. Just the business model wasn't right. But when I got to Orgello's, I realised after 17 years of success and having been where I'd been, scraped the barrel, that there was um, some input I, I could put into the business and, and sort of question a few things. Because when you continually have success year after year, you almost get oh complacent, and this is life. So my input there was having come from the bottom of the barrel was oh by the way I know if you do this this and this we can improve these areas and I was able to pass on some of those I suppose the learns I'd had from the pain of Earth transitioning into Orgello's um, and realised that you know th there was ways to continue to improve um, and the business has grown and grown and it, it's, it's got better. And I've been fortunate having. Great mentors and great business partners around me on that journey because all Jellos. Because Simon, Simon was asking you in to buy out another partner. But little did he know that you were in there to improve even more. Yeah. And, and um, for those of you who are listening, um, any business where you can impre increase prices by 10%, you can reduce your overheads by 10% um, and increase your business by 10%, your bottom line will increase. So your profit will increase by 300%. 
just by doing those yeah. simple things, right? And you set again, set yourself your goals that by X amount of time, ten percent up, ten percent, yep. and you did that really easy. Yeah, we found because that they had uh, had same situation, same mental style for so long. So we're coming in and put a little bit of squeeze on here and there. Uh, we're rather sharpen the pencil on suppliers. Uh, and just a simple thing. I mean, the suppliers, the alcohol supplier, as an example. Mm, they, yeah, that was a huge saving. Yeah, and, and you find that um, just by shopping around. And also in a competitive world, uh, we've since I first started that mold, we've actually transitioned to a, a major uh, international supplier. Uh, and again, they wanted our business because they saw us as strong and competitive. And that's a great thing. When someone sees strength, they want to be with that strength. And then they're, they're prepared to offer, to get into that, that the family, they're prepared to cut some deals. And we found that at all jellos. As we've got stronger, you know, we're about to cut more and more deals. You're attracting more, yeah. yeah. Now, um, there's a couple of things. Michael um, Colbert, I don't know if you know his name, but can you tell us how um, you know Billy Michael? Just punch it in, um, the actual circumstances around that. Now, for all of you in there, um, Bianca's put up, brought up a really good point. So this weekend we've been talking about the hero's journey, Kung Fu Panda, you know, it gets the, the chosen one by accident and then goes through this whole training, breaks the jaw, so he, yep. you know, uh, it starts to test his friends and allies. So out comes Steve Roach. You think he's an enemy, yep. but he's actually an ally in your in your pocket. And then you know you get to that point where the supreme ordeal is. Where finally, where I've, I've um, left football, and the supreme ordeal is I'm in the middle of Earth. And then you've got this mastery, right? Yep. So and and this has happened all this weekend for the for the two days we've been working this this yep. um, precipice of around you know the hero's journey starting again and then starting again and reaching the next level and next level. Now you um, <laughs> are in there. You're comfortable. You get a phone call um, from one of the biggest um, brewery companies in the world. Yeah, I did. I did. So this was um, 2012. So I I basically just started all jobs. I've been there about a year or so. Um, so 2012, I retired in 1999. I sent the Queensland call in 1995. So we're a fair way down the track from the book of rugby league actually being closed, put on the shelf. Yeah, I'll read a whole different book. Because it becomes folklore. Like, when anyone my age hears the term Queenslander, you don't think about the Queensland team, you think about Billy Moore. Coming down that tunnel. Yeah. The crazed look on his eyes, and the, he doesn't know the camera's there, but he's going berserk. So I got a phone call. So I'm working behind the bar or Jellos, and a phone call. Um, uh, G'day, uh, Billy. Um, um, this is Johnny Smith from um, uh, Lime, which is uh, owned by Kieran. Uh, brewing out of Japan, so the second biggest brewer in the world. Um, we want you to be the uh, the face of our origin campaign um, for 2012. Uh, basically, that'll be a very extensive program, uh, billboards, uh, TV ads, social media, blah, blah, blah. And I've gone, uh, mate, who is this? <laughs> and, so, and I didn't believe it was, it was I thought it was a few, a few of my old teammates uh, taking a joke out of me, but it was uh, obviously who he said he was. Um, and what it was is it was a campaign, extensive campaign, because Forex were the main sponsor of the QRL. Um, and what it turned out to be, it was uh, 93 roadside billboards, uh, a TVC campaign put across um, primetime TV in um, Queensland, uh, across all of Queensland, from Cairns all the way down to the southeast. Um, social media, which I had no idea, um, with a big emphasis on social media, uh, uh, print media as well. And I said, you're kidding me. He goes, yes, this is the deal. He said, I'll give you it as soon as the scope of works. Uh, he said, um, think about it and come back with a price. 
Well, I said no problems. Um, so he sent through a fax of Scope Works, and I went, oh, that's pretty impressive. Well, look, a lot of words. So I'm thinking a lot of words. I'm thinking a lot of words, a lot of money. <laughs> but I had no idea. And, and, but I think that the point of this story is that your mother was your manager, yeah. and she was a very good negotiator. Yeah. And that's now bred through into you too. Well, so I thought, well, first of all, I've got to actually articulate what is the right value for this. I had no idea. Uh, and all the people that hung around, you know, uh, most of them probably had no idea either. So I rang up uh, the ball boy at North Sydney, a guy called Jason, Jason Hodges, yes. great bloke, who uh, better homes and garden. Who only just finished on homes yeah. and gardens. Yeah. He was the, he's the, the fat gardener who's been making more money. He was the ball boy. He now makes more money than all of us. <laughs> uh, I rang up and said, mate, can you help me? Yeah, sure, mate. What is it? I said, I got this phone call from Lion about doing this campaign. I said, here, I'll show you what it is. And I sent him the facts. He goes, oh, that's pretty good. So that's 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 good. I said, well, how much is that worth? He goes, well, look, I would charge a hundred and something thousand dollars for that. But he said, you can't. So why not? I guess, well, look, Billy, your profile's gone, mate. He said, look, I would charge this level. Yeah. So let's not say any figures, so we don't know what the end contract. So he goes, it's what I would charge. I said, all right, no problems. Um, so that way, it calibrates in the fact that you had a, you did what you did, but you know the reality of life is you've drifted off into the sunset, uh, and you're not forgotten. But you, you, your file is very dusty, so to speak. <laughs> so I, uh, I get a phone call from Lion, and uh, they said, "Okay, if you thought about your price," I said, "Yeah, I have. Um, I want this," and they went, oh, "What?" And I said, "Yeah, that." And they said, "No, no, no, no." They said, "How do you get that price?" I said, "Well, I've spoken to someone in the industry. Uh, they reckon, you know." I have a lesser profile, so they would charge X, I've got X minus Y, so that's where I write this figure. He said, we're not going to pay that. I said, well, what are you going to pay? He said, we'll give you half that. And I said, oh, okay. He said, are you okay with that? And I said, uh, well, no, actually, I'm not really. I said, look, um, thanks very much for the opportunity, but um, I'm happy to stay off in the sunset, really. Three that's ballsy. That's ballsy yeah. because... The half was still okay, but there was a lot of work involved in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and it's ballsy to walk around this. Now, I think what's important out of this story is that um, previous to that phone call, um, only a matter of maybe six months or earlier, Kerry had said, you'd said to Kerry, you know, oh, what do you want to do? And she said, I want to run the New York Marathon. And she said, but you're doing it with me. Yeah. So you actually weighed 16 kilos heavier yeah, when that phone call happened. Yeah, exactly right. And I, I, I'd blown right out because I was a publican and a restaurateur, and I enjoyed those pursuits very well. So I, I uh, for the first time in my life, I, I had no fitness. Uh, so I started getting fit. And There's no exclusivity to success. No, no. And I, I tell you what, I know. That, you know I think back about some of those training runs, the the, the 10k, or the 15k, which when you're in tra- training mate, when you're in actually marathon phase, that's you know. You don't get up for 10Ks. But I've struggled really hard to run those and Kerry to burn me off and she left me awake. So I actually got better. I fit, I trimmed right down. So I got this phone call. I hung up. I said, mate, look, I'm not going to worry about it. Hung up. Three days later, they ring back and they said, you're serious. You, you're prepared to walk away from this. I said, um, yeah, I am actually. They said, oh, well, we didn't think you'd you know, be so staunch. I said, well, mate, I, I found out my value. I believed in the value. I'm confident in, in what I can provide you. Um, and if you don't see market reality like I see it, well, so be happy to walk away. He goes, well, we'll give you half of what you wanted. And I, they said, are you happy with that? I said, look, okay. But I'm, I'm going to just do half the work. They said, what? I said, look, I'll give you money. If you're going to pay half the money, I'll just do half the work you wanted. And I itemized some things that I was going to do. And I backed myself. Thinking, okay. So you pulled some things out of the contract yeah. and left other things in. So what I, what I pulled out was um, the billboards and the TVC. They did the social media 
um, which which everyone told me that this is the power of the future since 2012. Yeah. Like so we do the, the social media ad, and again, you can get well, some let, YouTube. Let's let's watch the um the ad. So I was I was sitting in the restaurant, right? Um, and you texted to me before it actually went out, and I went, "Oh, what a balls! Like, this is gonna hit like crazy, right?" Yeah. So let's play that ad for you right now. So there you have it, right? And I saw that, and I went, "That is gonna go crazy." I said Queenslander that day. That's only what I said. Basically, a whole day. A whole day. Uh, there was 15 people on set and the, on the other side of the camera. Uh, 800 times I screamed it, and each time with the same venom and passion as I did coming down the tunnel that day. Well, I was I was gone. You, you actually had um, someone put to you to actually say you could point and they yeah, would bring they said, it because my voice was going they said don't talk at all today just they had people that were minding me said what do you mean just point we'll get it for you and at the end of the day that, that was filmed they said I'm going to see you again tomorrow I, I, was, I can't do tomorrow thank god the next day was still shots right. so there was no voice required <laughs> but I like you I saw the concept and I said this will work that's why I pulled the TVC because I knew that would be the real marketing Barometer. Once I got it out there, that, that would be the real paycheck for me and open me back up. But the social media was going to be the conduit to it because they had the, the wide fingers out in the society. So they ran with that campaign, half value, half work. Uh, and what proceeded to happen is Tom Bills was the guy, Gay Tom's champion bloke. Yeah. He ran me back up and said, uh, Billy, he said um, a couple of weeks later, he goes, Billy, can we um, extend the deal? And I said, well, he goes, it's gone through the roof. It's little cray-cray. It's yeah. gone good. It was like it had half a million hits. In, in, in no time at all. So I said, okay. He said, so what do you want? I said, I want the other half, thanks, Tom. <laughs> so I got it all in the end. So you got it all in the end. But what was more important out of that was that Billy Moore had become an unknown. Yep. Other than the memory from people my age and whatever, you'd become an unknown. Yes. But because of that ad campaign, we had six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds running around the house yelling Queenslander and knowing your name again. Exactly right. And because I did it with passion, venom, and honesty, I always do things. Uh, I worked for Forex for the next five years. Uh, and I had some great experiences like running onto the field uh, just prior to the players and then revving the crowd up. I give you an idea how good it worked is the following year, they um, they made their own origin jerseys, which you could go and pick up from bottle shops if you bought products for Forex. Uh, they thought they were going to have 30,000 jersey sales. They had to open up two or three more factories in China because they ended up going through 130,000 of these jerseys. So it, it was great for me. Um, and what it allowed is, is the revival of Billy Moore because, as I said, I had turned it around in the early noughts and I was on the way back up but I really wanted the platform to be able to tell the turn story of how I had brought my life back out of the dip, which translated to people. When we had the pleasure of talking to people, when I talked about playing for Australia, Queensland, people go, oh, that's, you can just see their eyes going, that's a nice little story. Mm. But it's when I told them about making them the, the dip, the errors, which I turned into the learns, Everyone in the room, you can just see the gun. Yeah, we've had those issues. We, we've had adversity, and we've, we've either have or we're trying to to overcome it. And I, I get a lot more sense of pride. So when I think about the things I mentioned, the four key things from business which translate across, we mentioned one of them is mentors. The other keys I find is the one percenters do matter. As you get into business, like in sport. To get better and better, you've got to remember that it gets harder and harder. 
in your deals you do with developments, it'd be the same. People are jockeying for the same opportunities. One percenters make a difference. And you must articulate that to yourself and the people in your team that the one percenters caring and making sure you pay attention, fight and scramble for those one percenters, that's how you become a success. Because all of a sudden, a couple of percent becomes four percent, become five percent. We're talking now the difference between success and failure to then being not only not successful, but very successful. And it's about clamoring for those one percenters. That's one key thing I found. The other one I find is getting the right people on the bus. Uh, If you're in a position of being able to select those around you, whether it be suppliers, staff, wherever it may be, I always find that, you know, getting the right people on the bus. And there's a great saying that A graders recruit A graders, Mm -hmm. B graders recruit C graders. Yeah. Someone who actually is not at the top of his game, they'll get someone around them. They want to have people around them that actually aren't as good, become yes people. Whereas an A grader is not afraid to have people in the room smarter than them. That's what Mel Meninga was so good as a Queensland coach. He, he's not a brilliant coach, with all due respect to Mel. He's great at getting people around him that are really good at doing certain jobs in that team. And he himself, he wasn't afraid of having other guys that were probably better coaches, yep. but he knew he could man-manage and he'd manage those coaches. And then the, the, the fourth thing I, I've found in business that really makes success uh, I asked Craig Bellamy, the most successful coach in the last 15 years. Bennett's been the most successful over 25, yep. but the last 15, Bellamy's really led. Bellamy was Bennett's understudy. Right, yes. Yep. Yeah, and uh, before that, he was with a guy called Tim Sheens. Yes. Canberra, there were two great sides. And he learned from both those guys. And he's been amazingly successful, not only at winning competitions, but at producing on a conveyor belt people. He gets average and makes good. Good, great. He puts polish on the diamond. How do you do that? I had a chance to ask him. And surprise, surprise, it's very simple. He said, how do I make success happen in not only himself but those around him? He simplifies it. And each game for the Melbourne Storm, every person on the field has three KPIs. Ian has three jobs and Billy has three jobs. Cameron Smith, for a game, he has three jobs. Billy Flat had three jobs. Cooper Cronk had three jobs. To the guy coming off the bench who might get five minutes, he had three jobs. Everybody knew exactly what had to happen, what their job was for that team to have success. Do your job. No excuses. Do your job. Do your three things. And he knew that if everyone did their job, that the ball would be in the position with the right hands, with the right player, with the defensive line fatigue, so the opportunity for success would be at its highest. Yep. So I found that when you think about that, think about business, does everyone in your team know exactly what their job is? Do they know what success they have for today to have a successful outcome? What are the three jobs today for me to do? What are my three jobs this week? What are my three jobs this month? Whatever it may be, conveying, I think, to those around you and even yourself, mm. and that's where goal setting comes in, yeah. conveying what success looks like, and these are my three targets. You can do four if you want to, but if you don't do but the you first, have to do the first three. Have to, otherwise you have a serious conversation. And Craig Bellamy, if, if they don't do the first three and they do the fourth, well, they're out the next week. Cool. Because Craig Bellamy's done extraordinary to piece usually two or three superstars yep. and piece a team around. Now, Craig Bellamy buys 
players from other clubs that have been playing for five to ten years yep. and turns them into great players, or good players at least. Yes. Where they were average before, they're now good players. Why? Because they've got three simple things to follow yep. and they just prosper and they flower around the three superstars. And the other thing about those players, he buys them cheap. Yeah. He buys something And that's then sells one. them expensive. Yep. And when they go, they don't have that three Never. structure ever buy a player from a different player. The only one that's ever been able to do that and go away and be successful was Cooper Cronk because he was so yeah, internally... But he was one of the three superstars, though, wasn't he? He, he was. Um, I mean, Inglis did it as well. Superstar, mm. though. Yep, you know, yep. These are superstars. But anyone peripheral to those superstars that have gone, that have been bought by other clubs from Melbourne mm. have never done any of this. Another key point I find, and Craig Bellamy uses it in, in, in talking about these are three KPIs, is the communication channels. You've got to be able to communicate. And... On my dip, I stopped communicating. Had no mentors, and on the way down, I stopped communicating, talking. So I, I think communication too, having open lines of communication, where, especially if you're talking about in a leadership role, you never, ever talk down. Mm. You've got to have it always talking up. So you want to have a situation inside your staff where the two ICs or three ICs, they don't talk down to, to the lower troops. They've got to always talk up. It's because to solve problems, the communication channels have got to be coming up. If you have a cap on it and you're not listening, you don't, or there's no ability for people down below to talk up, they'll keep talking, and, but and it will cause infestation. Interesting you should say that because, um, you know, yesterday we put up a, a little um, sign that said everyone needs a Josie, and a Josie is the one that talks up to me. And, um, you know, we've got, we've got Bianca and a few others that are part of the crew here that are always looking out and saying, but what if, what if, what if? Mm. And, and, you know, if I was not to listen to that. Now, sometimes they're saying what if and I've already thought about it, but if I didn't listen to that, then that's going to create some angst with them mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. it's going to then destroy Now, our business is survive, survive, the corona is surviving through corona because of that whole um, yeah. structure and, and the amazing, amazing work that they've all done to stay here. Now, you're in the restaurant business, so yes. you are open for trade but only for takeaway. Yeah, we've gone from a 1,000 man hours to run all jellos from... Eight in the morning till nine at night, seven days a week. Uh, we close Christmas Day only. Um, so this is our twenty fifth year. So we're a bit of a local furniture model, but people know we're there. But we've gone from a thousand man hours to one hundred and twenty. So we're doing takeaways between five and seven thirty, five days a week. Saturday, Sunday, we do from twelve to seven thirty. Um, we've eighty five percent of our trades gone. We will survive. We will learn out of this. We will become bigger. Be stronger, faster, smarter off the back of it. Uh, and one of the key things we've got there is, is great staff. Um, they got confidence from the get-go, we will survive, we will be here, we'll be the last to shut, first to open, because we didn't know at one stage, we thought we were going to be shut. We yeah, were going to shut us. And we said, we will stay until they actually come and lock our doors. Mm-hmm. We will not be giving in here. Yeah. Uh, and thankfully, we've been left alone, and I think the, the signs are great, the infection rate's dropping, and we'll come out of it. Uh, the learns out of this are going to be great, and I, I, I can't wait to sit down and analyse it at the other side of it. But in the middle, we're right in the middle of the, the war zone for want of a bit of a term. Uh, and I'm proud of the way our customer base is, is seeing us, they're visiting Wajellos. Um, well, I would have to say, arguably, you would have to have the number one spot in the water. Yeah, we definitely do. We're right at the crossroads overlooking the water. Uh, the opposite, the loo with a view. Yeah, um, so, you know, that you actually did the smart thing there. You bought that property. Yeah. Um, it was cheaper to own it than to rent it. Um, yeah. Malulaba has one of the highest uh, retail commercial rents in the country. Exactly right. So for us, we were 30% better off 
Um, one of the great things I've looked back now, my learn from my first business to the second, um, was own the premises. Yeah. Uh, be your own landlord. Always. Uh, so that, that, that's been a good learn. Um, you know, when I think about the current terms and do it to all our listeners, I, I did, did a podcast on men's health uh, last week and uh, some key things I, I was able to think about there that are important for for me individually what I'm using as principles to come through this bigger, stronger, faster and smarter. Um, the, one of the things I, I look at is important to control the controls. Mm. So in the fall, I was out of control. I had no idea. But now when I stumble, and I still do, we, all slow, we still have learns um, along the journey. But what I realise is I don't want to jump at shadows. I always say control the controls. Very important. You know, Make sure then, once you're in the control, the controllable zone, it's really important you get a rhythm to your life. Get a rhythm and, 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 and make sure you have a pattern and be honest with that rhythm. Because I, I think the real key to success is momentum. Now, those that are successful, you can just see how they build momentum and they keep it going, especially through tough times. I mentioned before about I'm going to come out as bigger, stronger, faster than I've gone in because I've got a rhythm to my life. I'm making sure that, that, I, that I keep as much normality as I can. I keep hungry and smart to want to keep achieving, but I'm going to keep the momentum because I know along this journey, opportunities are going to present. I can guarantee to people out there, opportunities are going to present because some people will stop momentum. They'll lose their rhythm. So doing that, I think, is very important. Mm. And the fourth thing, when you're on that plane and things aren't going well, the oxygen mask drops down. What do they tell you to do? Put your own on first. 100%. Look after yourself. You must look after yourself first because the best way to help those around you is to be strong yourself. And by making sure you stay strong individually, then you have a chance to help someone else. But if you become weak and fragile... Well, that's the issue. The oxygen mask theory is if you put on someone else's, you're going to be on the floor and be a detriment to everyone and probably put everyone yep. else in danger. Yep. Well, a, a, a financial way of looking at it is the best way to help the poor is not to become one because as soon as you've got no capacity to yep. financially assist, then you have your hand out. Mm-hmm. But so, 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 so is the rest of the line. So the best way to help the poor is not to become one. Yep. The best way to stay strong in here is to help yourself and then look to help those around you. I haven't spoken too much about this one. Um, what's your learns about the outdoor area for Ortelos? The outdoor area it was great. It, it actually has turned our business around. Yeah, so let, let's, the story is that, you know, you've got this this Orgello space. Everyone else in along the promenade there has outdoor seating, but you don't have outdoor seating. No, we, we, we didn't. We've got, we got a lower deck, but it's got a, uh, it's raised. It's got a basic balcony around it, so we couldn't just go and put a chair on the other side of it because you'd fall down the, uh, to the lower street level. We were offered from the, our local councillor to, to move out underneath the trees um, within 20 metres of our front door. Now, with all jellos, 200 days a year, between probably 6 and 7.30, we turn people away. Every Saturday, Sunday, we'll turn people away in that zone. And we'll say, please come back. There's an opportunity to die. You get come back at 7.45, 8 o'clock. They don't come back. Mm. So what we had this, we reached our max capacity, 110 seats. They were full for that hour or so, uh, so 20, 20 days of the year. Um, what this outdoor area gave us is, um, well, you can't come inside, but if you like, you can go underneath those trees. And that alfresco, uh, alicard dying, is really cotton dotted. And in the Lullabar, it's nice weather, even in winter, it's beautiful out there. So what's happened to us at a time when, actually our upstairs dining started to wane, this downstairs dining has picked up. Um, and what it allowed us to 
use up to soak up that excess capacity. At not much extra cost. Well, virtually, the, the, the area is owned by the council, so that was given to us at a very good rate, like everyone else along the strip. Yep. But it didn't cost us any more in labour. Uh, you, you still had the same stuff on because it's turning away anyway. Um, and obviously, the gas, the, the gas, electricity, um, and the food costs and beverage costs, they're all about the same. So, we found that by having this addition, looking for being pragmatic and finding another opportunity inside the business was great. Um, what we've also done is, I was so easy at the time, was to me. As a, well, initially learned to be a restaurateur, you dine between 12 and 2.30, shut everything down and open up then between 5 and 8.30. All day dining on, oh, no, I don't want that because you, you had um, extra events, you, know, you, you had all these extra staff. What we realised is we wanted to create a bar space downstairs on that lower deck because everyone else had it at this bar. And that looks the water, it's magnificent. It's great thought, where can we get a bar from? And then we realised we've actually got one. But we used to shut it at 2 o'clock. So all of a sudden we've kept it open. I think, oh, hopefully we can do $1,500 a week was my goal. Billy Moore goal sitting. My first goal was $1,500 a week. We did that first week. We now, when we're humming, it's up to five, six, seven thousand $7,000 a week in an area which we never used. And what we did, it didn't cost us anything. Actually, it cost us less because we sharpened up our rostering. We got pragmatic. We looked at the same thing but from a different angle. Mm. Uh, and... That's because one. you used to have staff sitting around for three hours. Sitting around the often. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's an extra two fifty to three hundred k in mm. revenue that you weren't getting before. And no, it's talked about the compounding of you know if you increase your revenue, 10%. yep, ten percent here. So that's been brilliant. So we're coupling up this lower bar area, tacked on the outside area. So it's taken our business to another level. I think the um, important thing about everything that's happened financially um, because of the virus is that um, internal tourism is going to be bigger than ever. Uh, and, oh, you know, cool. and, and people love the Sunshine Coast. You know? We are not a, the Sunshine Coast specifically, uh, and Moolabar especially, we're not a flying market in the sense of international. We, we uh, international... Guests, I reckon, it would be less than 5%, yeah, right. maybe even lower. We, we're a drive market um, uh, around the southeast and also the Downs area out western Queensland. I had a lot of talking out there. It's amazing how many times I was speaking some place where you, you go out way out west like Winton or Blackall or something and they go, I've got this restaurant. They go, oh, yeah, we know that one. We'll tell us. <laughs> and and they, 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 the country folk come to the Sunshine Coast. So for us, if we can get the fly-in domestic market and I'm sure we will because I don't think we'll be flying away no. over for a long time. No. Well, I'm not afraid of it. I think we're flying in. But if we can pick up the Sydney, Melbourne fly market. You still get a fair bit of that, though, because um, I know when we run together and when I'm running with Kerry as well, I know when I know when it's school holidays, and that's yep. because when we're running along a promenade and you say hello to everyone, they don't say hello back because yep. they're from Sydney or Melbourne. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you sort, of, you sort of got that market there. Yeah, we do. And it will only get better. Yep. And, and what I think, what I can't wait to see... If, if we can take the chances, make the most opportunities to all our businesses on the Sunshine Coast, when someone from Melbourne comes up or uh, Sydney comes up, so they're going, oh, we normally go to Hawaii or we normally go to the Maldives or we normally go to the Caribbean, but to say, oh, if, if we go to Maloolaba, you know, how good is this? Mm. This is our chance. This is our chance. I talk about oh, opportunities, harnessing the chance. This is our chance inside your business to make the most of it because because of the, the terrible circumstances, but opportunity now presents. And I agree with you. I think domestic tourism over the next 12 months, this is our chance to capture a market that we've probably never been exposed to. So I can't remember we were training for something. Yeah, we were training for... I can't remember what we were training for. 
but we had to do a 16k run. And um, Carrie and, and I, so Billy's wife, so I'm, I'm allowed to um, thank you for allowing me to run off with your wife. Um, <laughs> we we're, we can be at time whippets when we're both pretty fit. Right? Yeah, yeah. We can go, right? And you're not a smooth runner. So, like, it's um, when you're running with Baby Billy, it's, it's simply not by stealth because you can hear him thumping along behind you, right? <laughs> uh, or in front of you sometimes because you do kick. And... Um, I remember this run that we did. We went from um, we went out to the lighthouse and back. Yeah. And at the lighthouse, halfway was a turn, um, sixteen k's to get back. And there's something that is inbred in people to be able to dig deep and pull it out. And I was just so awesome. I was like awestruck in the ability for you because you weren't fit um, anywhere near as fit as us two. And, and you just dug straight down deep. And I watched you. I watched the whole persona of you running up the hill, um, to up the Lullabar Hill to down into Alex. And I was just, holy fuck, like that is, mm. that is some gut, you know, that, that pulls out. And these are the things that I love to watch. You know, people say, why do you do what you do? Because every day I get out of bed, I want to see someone change. I want to see someone challenge what they do. And yep. you do that consistently, right? Um, but that day sticks so hard for for me because I watched how much pain you were in and how much you pushed through it just to get to the back end. Yeah, yeah well, I've, I've seen you push through pain a few <laughs> times too, actually. Um, but yeah, unfortunately for me now, we've got to get a hip replacement. Yeah. <laughs> so that was one thing. Uh, the, the pain that I pushed through uh, came at a cost, but I wouldn't change one thing. No. So I'll, I'll actually, a little quick one for the listeners. Of my doctor who's going to do the surgery, uh, obviously at the moment, surgeries are off. Yes. He, um, I went and saw him um, to have this thing called a, a resurfacing where they basically almost attach the leg, put a cap on the top of the femur and then a receptacle into the pelvic girdle. Um, it's good because I can still run. Yeah. To chop off way the old way, I don't want that because you can't run again. So I went and saw the surgeon, uh, professor, Associate Professor Patrick Weinbrow, and I walked in and he goes, oh, she said, God, I thought it was going to be you. She said, oh, I can't wait to show you these photos. And I was taking them back. I was with Carol. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I've got some great photos. Great photos. I said, yeah, good. I said, but can we talk about the hip? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, So he takes me through the procedure. He said, you're a perfect candidate, 48. You can keep running. I've got four more marathons I've got to do. So I can't stop running. I'm going to keep, I'm going to do these four marathons. Remember, we're only starting with one. We're only ever doing <laughs> one. <laughs> so I've got four to go. Um, so... Anyway, I got into the meeting and I was, I was consultation. I said, so what are these photos? And I'll have to send the photos to you so you can send to our, our, our viewers. He goes, um, he's excessive compulsive, this guy. He was going to go climb Mount Everest, but he can't because obviously in Nepal they shut the visas yeah. down. Like um, but he wasn't happy with the surgical equipment he used. So he goes, oh, I made my own. So he sent him off to the manufacturer. And the manufacturer uh, came back and said, they're brilliant. And they said, look, We'll make them, um, and you can name them. Though. That's normally a procedure. If you invent uh, instruments, you get to name them the way you want. He goes, oh, good. Well, they normally name them. I said, well, after themselves. He goes, oh, it's not my guy. I don't want to do that. He goes, I want to name them after something that I and the other doctors from the Gold Coast and all his staff who had a buy-in to inventing the instruments or creating them, something we all believe in. <clears throat> and uh, I said, well, what would you call them? He showed me a photo of a surgery where he's behind the plastic mask in his gown, there's blood everywhere, and there's you know, someone's legs over there, and all these instruments, the knives, the axes, the saws, they're all called Queensland. <laughs> so I said, I want the surgery done, and I said, I only get two jerseys, and I want you, I'll give you the jersey, we'll sign them both, and I said, I want, I want my knives and saws you use, 
with the blood left on them. So you can put them on the jersey. We're going to frame them. Oh, how awesome. <laughs> so the Queenslanding. But what I like about you is that you take context into everything. And they've already seen it and they haven't picked it up already. Craig Bellamy does the, the three things. Yep. Everything that you do is either three or four things. Everything we ever talk about is um, the first thing I say is this, and the second is this, and the third is this, and it's, sometimes you throw the fourth one in. Yeah, it, it sounds a simple model, but geez, I, I talked about rhythm and momentum. And if you can create a rhythm of constantly achieving, constantly passing goals, constantly setting something, the better, the, the, getting in front of those guideposts, you're creating the rhythm. That creates momentum. And I said, momentum is how you make change because change to me has to be done over a sustained period of time. And real success, whether it be an individual or an organisation, comes through sustained momentum. And the three KPIs... Each day you get up and you go, I know I'm going to do this, this, and this. Well, you sit in the night before and you go, okay, what's the most important thing for me to achieve tomorrow or next week? You itemize that. You write it down. You're making a contract with yourself. You can't deny you've done it. Yep. You've written it down. There it is. And you go out and you tick, tick, tick. Honestly, that gives me, what's next? What's next? What's the next day? And what you'll find is you constantly, the moment it happens, 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 and then all of a sudden you'll start to achieve those long-term goals. You want that long-term development to happen. Well, on the way, let's break that up. Let's get momentum. What are we going to do today, though? How are we going to do something today that's going to affect something all the way down there? And yep. this is, you know, you talk about even at night time. At night time, you've got a goal, and your goal is that shining light. You're going driving to that town. You can see yep. the light in the distance, but you don't know what the road looks like. No. And then you talk about guideposts along the way. And I talk about passing them. And you can see, so here are the guideposts, you can see them. You can see the goal one, goal two. And they're, they're short-term goals you set each day. And, and they've got to be realistic because there's no point setting goal two if it's around the corner over the hill. You can't see it. So it's got to be at, at a measurable distance in front. I can see where I want to get to today. I'm going to go and get that. Because once I get two, I get three. Because the thing about guideposts, how often do you look at the guideposts in the mirror and you go past it? Hardly you, ever. You don't worry about it. Once you go past the goal, like when I played first grade at 17 years and 10 months, that goal at 23 wiped out. I need to set another one. So you've got to keep goals out in front, keep them off into the distance, and keep challenging yourself. But while we're on that road of success, what I will always love to go back to people, and this is the learns. On that road, you are going to have the broken jaw moment. At some point on that road, Every road has a crossroad. Yep. Guaranteed. Guaranteed that that's what will happen. That's one thing in the certainty of life. It's when you come to the crossroad, what do you do? And the key fundamental there is, I touched on one of the pillars, the word honesty. When you hit that crossroad, that is the fundamental. What or how honest have you been? Yep. How bad did you want this goal? How bad did you want this outcome? How bad did you want to succeed? Because right now is going to be your test. Mm -hmm. That's the great thing about adversity is, as Pat Jarvis said, you know, it's right now the darkest moment right before the dawn, the broken jaw moment. You, know, you, don't, you don't deserve it. You've got to make it and take it. So right now is how much at that crossroad do you want that successful road to continue on? And that's when you ask yourself the question, do I want to give up? Do I really want it? Yep. Because if it was easy, if the development was easy, everyone would have it. Everyone would have done it. Exactly. So that's what differentiates. I think average from good, good to great is being able, and it's not about big special magical things, it's those little one percenters, those little fundamentals, getting them right. And when you hit the crossroad, go, wait on, I'm not going to run from this challenge. I want this, I want this, this bad. I'm actually going to take this challenge on because I've got confidence in the honesty I've built my goals around.
uh, the amazing Billy Moore. Thank you very much. Thank you, and to our, our wonderful listeners. Hopefully, hopefully you got some from that. I always say, on the back of it, I've thrown as much information as I can. The one fundamental. Don't do restaurants. <laughs> Stay out of the restaurant game. <laughs> That's for fools like me. <laughs> okay, awesome. Thanks for hanging around the Small Talk Big Ideas podcast. We hope you enjoyed that and pulled out plenty of information that'll help you move forward. If you want to find out or listen to more podcasts, please subscribe, follow us on social media, or go to ianugate.com.au to find out much more about what we do. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Small Talk Big Ideas podcast. We hope we've succeeded in our goal to inspire and challenge you. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode of Small Talk Big Ideas with Ian Ugarte.